Wow. The psalmist says, my boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places, referring to just the life that God has given them, him. And uh, I feel that. My boundary lines have fallen in such sweet places. Okay, we are looking at the book of Daniel. Daniel 3, if you have a Bible like mine, let's turn to page 721. We love to stand for the reading of God's word, so let's stand. Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, and set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before it. And then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down in worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing fire. And therefore, as they heard the sound of all those wonderful instruments, all the nations... All the peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, though, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said, King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of your instruments must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is this true? that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up. Now, when you hear the sound of my instruments, and if you are ready to fall down to worship the image that I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then what God will be there to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will. But even if he does not, we will not, we, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. And then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his ad- attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them in the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. 
And then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in utter amazement, asked his advisor, advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, of course, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. It's God's word. You can be seated. Okay, so the Bible, we, we know, is a story. It's one big, massive story. It's God's story. It's God's massive story to make sense of all stories. Big stories, small stories, already bitty stories. So if the Bible is a story, then we need to find our place where we are in the story. And the place where we are in the story is we have come to the end of what we would call the Old Testament. The Jews would call uh, their book the Tanakh. It's, it's literally uh, how their story ends. Ours, of course, keeps going. But it ends when this superpower from, this, from the East, this empire, comes and does what all empires do. You become a world empire through conquest and through uh, military battles, and Israel is one of its many victims. Now, one of Babylon's visions is to create the greatest city that the world has ever seen. So what it does when it conquers a people group is it kills off all the weak, the sick, the elderly, the deformed, and it identifies the best of the best. And it deports them back to Babylon. I mean, this is all like this social engineering that they're doing to create this master race of people to make Babylon this elite city. And this is exactly why Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego end up in Babylon is because Babylon comes, conquers, puts all their people to the sword except this remnant of the elites, or at least the ones who Babylon determines to be the elite. And they bring them back to Babylon where they send them to the world's greatest university, the University of Babylon, uh, give them high rank, um, give them all the best that Babylon has to offer with the hope that they'll make as elites Babylon into this elite city. And here's what happens when these, the Bible describes them as kids, teenagers. They're brought into this environment with other elites from other conquered people groups. And they're looked at with such favor. And the professors and the, the government officials are, look at them with such favor. Even Nebuchadnezzar takes notice of these, these kids, these teenagers. And when they graduate, they're given high rank in Nebuchadnezzar's government. And see, what the Bible, Daniel 1 verse 8, wants to show us is the reason why they're given such favor. It's not because they're the most gifted. It's not because they're the most talented or the most handsome. 
uh, that they're just these, these uber special kids. But Daniel 1 verse 8 says they chose to not defile themselves in the stuff of Babylon. They were kids who had convictions to put stakes in the ground to say we are going to remain true to what we believe. We're going to be, remain true to our God and to what God has called us to be. It's a lot like what James in the New Testament talks about when he talks about pure and undefiled religion. It says pure and undefiled religion is, is when we move into the world and we take care of the least of these. We take care of the widow. We take care of the orphan. And where we remain unstained, unstained from the world. And that is our calling. That's why we are in the book of Daniel, to get our marching orders in a time like this that we live, that we know who we are and why we are here, that we are called to immerse ourselves fully in Babylon, loving it, serving it, taking care of the least of these, but all the while remaining unstained. Unstained. So now we come to Daniel 3. It's hard to know how much time has elapsed. Scholars say about this, this is probably 10 years later. So Daniel and his three friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are probably in their late tw- 20s. And this is during the, the, the peak of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And for some reason, Nebuchadnezzar just decides to build this huge statue. Scholars don't quite know is if, if this is just a statue that represents all the gods of Babylon or if this is actually a statue that depicts Nebuchadnezzar himself. Because sometimes in the East, uh, rulers, megalomaniacs would start to believe that they were God manifest, that they were all the gods in the flesh. But here's, I think, uh, what we can discern. It, it's pretty easy to discern what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do with this in, de- in deporting all of these diverse people groups uh, back to Babylon. So, so now he has this real pluralistic society. He's trying to find something to unify all of this diversity around. So he erects the statue. I mean, it's, it, it's his attempt to unify the, the empire, and you can see that in verses 2 to 5. Uh, we have a clause in our country that um, came about when our country was, was, was just kind of getting formed. It's this Latin phrase, e pluribus unum. In fact, that clause is on many of our coins today. And it simply means, out of the many, one. Because when uh, a nation or an empire that is highly pluralistic comes together, what is the unifying principle around that? And I know all of us value unity. We, We see unity as a good thing, but it's only a good thing when we're unified around what is really right and good. I mean, I'm an avid World War II student. I read thousands upon thousands of, of, of pages of, of, of just reading about, about World War II, primarily the Western Front. 
Uh, I Devoured the Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. It's a thousand-page book written by William Shire. Um, they had a motto. Germany, Nazi Germany. Ein Reich, ein Volk, ein Fear, which means one realm, one people, one fear. And see, we know that to be unity around a statue that's utterly evil and leads to evil. Sometimes I, 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 I try to be good enough to put the noise out, but sometimes I'm not good enough. Um, <laughs> I know you're not good enough all the time either, but we love babies too, don't we? Amen. Now, the author of this wants us to see the, the, the utter evil of this statue that Nebuchadnezzar builds. And, and one of the ways the author does this is in its description in verse 1. It describes a statue as 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. And see, right away, we all want to know, okay, what's a cubit? And a cubit actually is a foot and a half or 18 inches, which means that this statue is 90 feet high and it's 9 feet wide. But we need to take off our, our, our Western lenses and not just reduce numbers to a simple quantity because Middle Easterners or Easterners who primarily write the Bible don't just see numbers that way, but they also see numbers symbolically. And that's why in the Bible, the number six, which is the day in which man and woman were created, is the number for man. And because six is less than seven, and seven is the number of God, it's the number of God because it's the number of completion, it's the number of wholeness, which means six is less than God, and it's, it's now the number of incompleteness. In fact, six is the number of evil. And so our author tells us this statue is not just a six, it's a six-six. It's not just evil, but it's evil Evil, Just like the way the Bible describes Goliath in the story of David and Goliath, Goliath too is, if he had a uniform on, his, his uniform is 6'6". Six, six. He's six cubits high, and the author tells us that he has a spear that weighs 600 shekels. And we want to know how tall is that and how much does that spear weigh. But the, the Middle Easterner is thinking, no, this is the author's way of saying this giant is a six. And not just a six, but a six-six. Not just evil, but evil-evil. And just think about what Goliath is in that story. Goliath is someone who is standing there as this giant making a mockery of God. Making a mockery of God's people. Standing against the Lord's anointed. And that's exactly what this statue in our story is. It's, it's, it's a giant that's, that's erected, that's making a mockery of God, a mockery of God's people, and standing there just to defy him. Now, although it's utterly evil, people will unify themselves around anything, even if, if it is evil. We I mean, look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, therefore, as soon as you hear the sound of all the musical instruments, when they heard it, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the statue of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The masses will do this. They, they, they 
will bow even to evil for the sake of unity. And one of the reasons for this is because there's safety in unity. I mean, this is the power of what people talk about today of, of groupthink, that when our group or our tribe or our company or our school or our nation or our time, the spirit of the age, when it all thinks the same, you have to understand that this can be a dangerous thing because what it causes us to do to actually stop thinking because we're insulated with all these people around us who think just like us. Now, if you think that this statue doesn't exist in our world today, I don't think you're thinking. I'll give you a few things that come to my mind. And I want to be really fair here, but more and more I see this statue erected in our university, universities today that want to indoctrinate us in a doctrine of political correctness that determines to all of us, this is how we are to think, this is how we are to act, this is, this is uh, how we should talk about things. And while political correctness has been helpful because words matter and words can hurt, there's a sense if that's all that's right and wrong is reduced to just how we speak about things, that is a new hypocrisy and pharisaicalism that we all have to bow to that doesn't even get to the heart of anything. Another statue I thought about is our media. I mean, our media today has turned into nothing but, but, but propaganda for the most point. And I'll give you both sides of it right now. Uh, Fox News and CNN. If you're buying what they're selling, you're not thinking. We are living in a time where the media can just throw little sound bites and catchphrases and everybody just buys it as what is. We are living in a time when we as believers, we need to be thoughtful, we need to be thinking. Or let me just bring this home to our world. Let me, let, let me just talk about some local idols or statues. Sports, money, fame, sex, Health, beauty. Any one of these can become a statue that we bow to. Because re remember what an idol is. An idol is any object of my wants, my lust, my coveting that causes my heart to turn anything, whether that thing is a good thing or a bad thing, into an ultimate thing or into a God, God thing. See, that's what, that's, that's what the human heart does. In fact, that's why in the New Testament, whenever the New Testament writers are talking about what's wrong with the human heart and talking about how God changes our heart, 
when it talks about what's, what's wrong with our heart, it uses this catch-all term. In Greek, it's epithumia. Thumia means desire, and epi, you know what that means. It means just this epi, this ultimate uber desire. And our Bibles oftentimes translate uh, this, this epithemia into evil desire, but epithemia is not a desire for something evil. Oftentimes it can be a, a desire, an over-desire, an uber-desire for something good that leads to evil. It's what our hearts like to do. They like to take a good thing or a bad thing and turn it into an ultimate thing. I mean, John Calvin, I think, said it best. He said, because our hearts were made to worship as something as awesome as God. When we don't worship God, our hearts become like idol factories, turning anything into a God thing. We can do this with anything. We can do this with money. We can do this with success. We can do this with popularity and fame. We can do this with our health. We can do this with a substance. We can do this with sport. We can do this with a hobby. We can do this with a toy, getting the latest gadgets. We can do this with a relationship, a boyfriend, girlfriend. We can do this with our careers. We can do this with our ministry. We can do this with our family. We can do this with our kids. The point where we can't do life Without these things, we must have them to the point where these things then become the true gods that we worship. And see, oftentimes when people read the Bible, even like we come to a text like today, we look at the ancients, we think, man, how, how, how um, unsophisticated they are. They, they erect these statues, and you read about all this idolatry in the Bible, but here's what the ancients, I think, understood that we, we don't understand today. That money is more than money. That food is more than food. That sex is more than sex. That all these things can exercise this enormous spiritual power over our lives. And see what the ancients did is they recognized these powers and they labeled these powers as gods to be worshiped. Ask an addict if food is just food. Ask an addict if money is just money, if sex is just sex, if a, if a substance is just a substance. See, and this is why God's first commandment is also first in importance when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, no idols, no graven images. Because what God understands is the psychology of our heart and the psychology of sin, the sin beneath all sin is idolatry. Sin is not just breaking the rules. Sin is seduction. It's having our hearts seduced by something other than God. This is the sin beneath all sin. The reason you covet your neighbor's wife is because you've made an idol out of sex or true love. The reason why you murder and why you steal and why you lie is because you think you need to have something or preserve something or you need to get something in order to make yourself happy. I've just gone down a big rabbit trail this morning, but why have I gone there? Maybe we aren't bowing to the big statues of our, of our day, but I Idolatry is running rampant in our lives. It is mine. 
And we can come to a text like this and not just play games with it, but allow for God to speak into our lives and, and where we can have the, the, the courage to say, God, could you identify uh, lesser things, lesser loves, uh, idols in my heart and life that I can then experience the joy. I tell my football players this all the time, of repenting of Nothing like repenting. There's so much at stake. So much. Because what we worship is what we'll become. In Jeremiah 2 verse 5, uh, God says to his people, he says, uh, my people have gone after worthless things, worthless gods, and in so doing have become worthless themselves. It's because we, can't, we become what we worship. If we are worshiping worthless things, we're going to become worthless. And I, I, I hear that from so many people today, young and old, that they have this, this feeling of worthlessness. And, and, and yet we never want to like listen to what God says as to why we might feel worthless. Maybe we feel worthless because we are worshiping and pursuing worthless things. Okay, I'm done with that. We'll move on. Verse 13. I'm going to call these guys Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not by their Babylonian names, but by their Hebrew names. Because they would never, ever take on that Babylonian name. They would never call each other by that Babylonian name because their name to them is their identity. And their identity is their destiny. And those are names that God gave them. And God is in these names. So Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they get ratted out in verse 13. And it's probably not hard to deduct what happened. Um, they're always around these elites, and elites get jealous of other elites, and so these elites are probably jealous of uh, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and so they tell Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar hears this, and he's furious. And then in verses uh, 14 and 15, you have to understand, Nebuchadnezzar is this heartless and cruel killer. He's like all megalomaniacs. He brings them uh, into his office or whatever, into his palace, and he says, guys, um, let's try this again. I'm going to play the music, and when the music plays, you will bow to my statue or die. And their response might be one of the greatest responses in the Bible and maybe of all time. Look at verses 16, 17, and 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God that we serve is able to deliver us, and he will. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. This is one of those moments in the Bible where you're drawn into the story and, and you can't help but ask yourself, could I do this? 
could, could you do this? Could you have the most powerful person in the whole world look at you and say, worship that or you die? And could you say to him, no, no. Now, the way I started thinking about this this week is, first of all, am I brave enough? Like, would I have enough courage? And I think that's how we think about this. Would we have enough courage? Because it would require a lot of courage uh, to be able to look Nebuchadnezzar in the eye and say, no, dude, not doing it. I'll die. But the more I thought about this, I, I, I realized that it has less to do with courage and more to do with love. Because we really only die for what we love. And so I, 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 I think about my wife, I think about my daughter, I think about my kids, I think about my football team. Would I die for them? Easy. Would that require courage? Tons of it. But when you love someone, you'll die for them. And for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, this isn't just dying for what they believe. This is dying for someone they love. They love God. They love him. And I don't want to take belief out of this because these young men are, are, are men with convictions. We, we see this in the text when they say to the king, oh king, the God we serve, he is able and he will deliver us. Those are, those are convictions. Those are the kind of convictions that we need to have today as we live in our world. And today the cool thing is to not have convictions, but to kind of like just be open to everything. If you don't have convictions, you're not going to die for anything. But for these guys, it is more than belief because they say, even if our God does not, your majesty, we still will not bow down to your gods. And then you have to ask yourself, how can they say this? It's because they possess a greater love. They love God more than their own life. And they don't just love God for what God can do for them. They love God for who God is to them. There's this uh, rabbinic story that, that I like. It's, it's a story about a rabbi who actually misleads one of God's children. Again, it's just, it's just a parable. Um, but God comes to this rabbi and says, because you have misrepresented me to one of my children, you will have no place in the life to come. And the story goes that this rabbi then begins to cry. Literally tears uh, come down his cheeks and and drip off his chin, but they're not tears of, of sadness, they're tears of joy. And he starts to dance, and he's so happy. And someone says, how are you happy about not getting to enter the life to come? 
And he says, all my life I've served God for what God can do for me. But now for the first time I can serve God just because I love him. You love God. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ahad, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And here's the deal. If we're, if we're ever going to be healed of our, our idolatry, if our hearts are going to be set free from our lusts and our wants and our cravings for money, sex, power, fame, food, you name it. It's not going to be through sheer willpower. Those loves and desires must be replaced with a greater love, with a greater desire for something that's even more satisfying and more delightful than the thing that we crave. And that's God. We've been made to crave God. We've been made to love God, to worship God. Augustine said it so well. God made us for himself. Our souls are restless until they rest in him. See, and we, when we can start singing songs like, Lord, you're more precious than silver. Lord, you're more costly than gold. Lord, you're more beautiful than diamonds. And nothing I desire compares to you. That's when our hearts can be free. Or when things that are precious to us are, are, are taken from us, can we still say like David, oh God, you are my God and earnestly I seek you. My soul longs for you. My body thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You say that. Or can you say like Paul, he says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost everything. I consider everything as garbage that I may gain Christ. See, when our heart can truly say that, our hearts are set free. We can sing what we sung earlier today. My chains are gone. My heart's been set free. Because we know a greater love than anything this world has to offer. I'll tell you who the most powerful man in Nebuchadnezzar's palace is that day. I'd love to be there. I'd love to witness this. Because I know the Nebuchadnezzars of the world. These powerful men also have all their henchmen all around. All their might and power to protect them. And then they bring uh, these three guys in to intimidate them. And, our, our, you know, it, it would be so easy to conclude that Nebuchadnezzar, of course, is the most powerful man in that room. Except we're going to learn next week that his life is a train wreck. His empire is going to become a train wreck. Because there's a greater power in our world than the power that comes from riches, fame, and high rank. We're talking about the power that comes from a life that is wholly rooted in God. 
And this is the power that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah possess. It, it, it's the power to look at the most powerful man in the world and say, we don't need to defend ourselves to you. And you're like, how do these guys have, have the guts to say this? Because when our hearts truly fear God, we will fear nothing else. We can say to even kings, I'm not bowing to you and I'm not bowing to your gods. And that is real power. See, and when we let God name us instead of Babylon, when our identity and life purpose is not derived from the world and what the world has to offer, but it's derived from God, who God names us to be, what God calls us to be, and that our hearts are truly, truly satisfied in him alone, that's power. That's power. Now, how do we become like Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah? How do we have a, a heart that loves and a, a heart that believes and a heart that has convictions and a heart that has this kind of courage? And let me just end with this. We have to know God. And we have to know him in the furnace. I mean, look at verses 24 and 25. <laughs> The king Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that I tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, of course, your majesty. But Nebuchadnezzar said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Now, for those of you who have been here long enough, you know how I read the Bible, that I see Jesus all over the Bible. Uh, when, when Adam and Eve hear God walking in the garden, um, and when this stranger shows up at Abraham's tent, and when Jacob wrestles with this guy at Penuel, and when Moses eats uh, with, with this entity, with the 70 elders up on Mount Sinai, and when uh, this, this wonderful shepherd that's uh, a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night walks God's people to the Red Sea and shepherds them 40 years in the desert, and the one who Isaiah encounters in the temple with the angels all around him saying, holy, 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 that that person is Jesus. And it's the same Jesus that shows up here and walks with Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah in the furnace. And the furnace is a picture of life, according to the Bible. Life is a furnace. When life hurts, when it's hard, when it's difficult, when we're mistreated, when we're thrown into the fire of suffering. <laughs> you know what the great promise of the Bible is? God promises to walk with us in the furnace. With us. Emmanuel. God with us. Especially when we're in the furnace. When life is difficult. I love this. If you know what Hananiah means, it means my Lord is gracious. Mishael means who is like our God. Azariah means the Lord is my help. Literally, as these guys are walking in the furnace, I can, I can literally them 
hear them saying their names to each other as Jesus is walking with them. Hananiah, my Lord is gracious. Azariah, God is my help. Mishael, who is like our God? David said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. In Isaiah 43, and and Isaiah was a prophet when when these uh, guys were little kids living in Jerusalem. They probably heard Isaiah preach several times. Maybe they even heard this sermon when Isaiah says, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have named you. You're mine. You belong to me. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, and I love you. That's God. And sometimes we pass through the fire, through the furnace to remain in this world, and, and, and sometimes we pass through the fire to enter the very arms of God. But he's with us. Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi of Britain, said, Christians believe that God comes to us to rescue us from suffering, but Jews believe that God comes to us to simply suffer with us. I don't know what your furnace is. But I know this about God. He wants to walk with you. He wants to walk with you in your furnace where you can say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow, I will fear no evil, for my God is with me. But even more than this, God promises more than just to walk with us in our furnace. He walks for us in the ultimate furnace. Because the Bible often speaks about the end when God is going to finally judge the, the heavens and the earth, and that day will be a furnace of God's white, hot justice for all sin. And this is a furnace that every single one of us deserve because we've all bowed to other gods. We've all worshipped other idols. We've all given our hearts to worthless things. And this has caused hurt, not only in our own lives, but it's brought evil into our world. But Jesus, he is the e pluribus unum. He is the one who unifies the many. He is the one who reconciles all things, and he is the one who came to reconcile us to God. Jesus came to the world for almost this one purpose, to enter that furnace in our place. so that we're spared it. And when I see Jesus being thrown into that furnace, not just dying the death that I deserve to die, but suffering the hell that I deserve to suffer, that he did this for me for the simple reason that he loves me so he can walk with me in my furnace. This is what melts this crusty, steely heart and causes me to love God 
more than anything else. With all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, not because I'm so good, but because the God of the universe is that good. Behold him. Worship him. God, thank you. Thank you for who you are. That you love us this much to walk with us. And God, that you took the furnace that we deserve so we could have your life. We bless you. We honor you. We exalt you. We worship you. We love you. Amen. Can I have one of the football players come up and pray? I'm kidding. <laughs> Jackson, get up here and pray for us. I coach with Jackson. And uh, it's one of my best friends. Pray for us, man. Uh, Father, uh, just thank you for today. Uh, and what a gift it is to uh, gather together under the name of Jesus Christ and... Um, to be able to worship and sing songs declaring your praises and declaring how good you are to us. Uh, we thank you for your death and your resurrection and that uh, even in the darkest of times, you promise us your resurrection life, uh, that there is, that, that there's always hope, Jesus. Um, yeah, we bless you and we thank you, God. We pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen.